We're, we're in a series of messages. We're in a series of messages on parables. We're considering the parables of Jesus. And, and what we've been talking about is not just that, that parables are these cute spiritual stories that Jesus told. Jesus is trying to tell us when, when, through these parables, you're entering another reality. To hear a parable is to step into a portal and see another realm, another actuality. That's what's going on here. Don't just call it another Garrison Keillor story from Lake Wobegon. No, 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 no. We're talking about seeing the world through God's eyes. You want to do that today. You want to step into God's palace and look out God's window and see what God sees. That's what's going on in the parables. And today's parable is found in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. If you have your Bibles, would you meet me in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14? You'll find that in your church Bibles or in the tray beneath your chair or, or the tray in front of you. You'll find that on page 877, 877. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. I, I want to put a tag on this message. The peril of self-celebration and the priceless mercy of God. The peril of self-celebration and the priceless mercy of God. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. So this afternoon, sometime after lunch, while we're relaxing on the couch, some of us will tune into our favorite NFL team. You got yours in mind now. 
Yeah, so over the course of three hours, we'll witness first downs and touchdowns and touchbacks, and, and, and we'll see blitzes and sacks and safeties and blocked punts and interceptions. And there, there's likely going to be a field goal winning score on the last play of the game. Or not, right? Uh, a two-point conversion may either win the game or throw it into overtime, right? And we're going to witness some impressive athleticism, won't we? There's going to be leaps and face-first dives and one-handed catches. And there's going to be some touchdown returns by some lightning-fast receivers. And, and that after each of these gladiatorial marvels, it's highly likely that we're going to witness what has become uh, a rather monotonous staple of American football. The self-celebration. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and some of these celebrations have been given names. Uh, there's, uh, there's the shooting the basket. Okay? There's the, the going bowling. There's the archer and the bow. Right? There's the cell phone. Yeah, the cell phone. That's where, the, that's where before the game the player hides a cell phone at the bottom of the goalpost and then when catching the ball for the touchdown, goes over and, and you know, kind of does a shtick, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cell phone is what it's called. Then there's the maternity. Don't ask me what that one is. <laughs> some, some athletes have sustained season-ending injuries in their celebrations. I'm talking about torn meniscus, I'm talking about concussions, sprained ankles, broken fingers, broken toes. Uh, one player was so excited about what he had done scoring, he did a headbutt into a concrete end zone wall. Yeah, and he had to go to the hospital, sprained neck. Did I mention that these are grown men? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'm just cranky. Or maybe David Brooks is on to something in his book, The Road to Character. He talked about promoting our own successes. He said, you know, the day after Japan surrendered in 1945 and World War II ended, singer Bing Crosby appeared on a radio program and he said this, he said, well, it looks like this is it. What can you say at a time like this? I guess all anybody can say is, thank God it's over. Brooks said shortly after studying about what happened in World War II, he watched a pro football game, and this is what he observed. A quarterback threw a short pass to a wide receiver who was tackled almost immediately for a two-yard gain. The defensive player did what all professional athletes do in these moments of personal accomplishment. He did a self-puffing victory dance as the camera lingered. And this is what Brooks said. He said, it occurred to me that I had just watched more self-celebration after a two-yard gain than I had heard after the United States won World War II. I don't know, maybe I'm just a cranky preacher. And I get it. 
I get the entertainment factor. And it is kind of cool to see them choreograph these things. But here's what I know. While self-promoting exhibitionism may be one thing on a football field, it's an entirely different matter in a worship service, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Isn't that what Jesus' concern is in verse 9? He's talking to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It's almost like the one inevitably leads to the other. See it? You see it? Step into the palace of God's parable here, and let's just take a look at reality the way God sees it. Jesus tells of two who went to worship. They were two of hundreds who attended temple worship in the Jerusalem uh, uh, capital twice a day, every day. Twice a day, every day. There was prayer time at Jerusalem's temple, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., twice a day, twice a day, every day. Faithful Hebrews and God-fearing Gentiles would stream into the temple compound. Uh, it had a perimeter of about three-quarters of a mile. It was huge. Twice a day, every day, the facility filled with prayers and worship. After entering the compound, the Hebrew men would ascend 14 steps. And those steps would lead into the temple itself. And only the Hebrew men were allowed to ascend the steps. You see, there was an area for everyone. Then there was an area for just Israel. And then there was an area just for the Israelite men. And then an area just for the priest. And then an area for the, for the high priest, you see. That's how it worked. And there in the court of Israel, where the daily sacrifice took place, the priest would take an unblemished lamb and pin up its front legs and its back legs and at the appointed time would sacrifice it. And its body would be consumed in the fire. It was a sin offering. It was a substitute for one day and one day only. God would postpone judgment. And then the priest would take the liquid incense and pour it on the fire and the water would evaporate and the smoke would rise to heaven symbolizing the prayers of the people of God. And it was there in the court of Israel where those two men were among hundreds and hundreds who stood and prayed and one of those two men was a Pharisee. A Pharisee. Now, we've been conditioned to think of Pharisees as the bad guys. But I guarantee you, if you had a choice with your daughter marrying a Pharisee or a tax collector, you'd pick the Pharisee every time. You would. So the word Pharisee literally means separated ones, dedicated ones. Phariseeism... Uh, was a movement started uh, around 150 years before the birth of Christ by dedicated Hebrew people. They were concerned that Greek culture and Roman culture would erase Hebrew identity. And so the Pharisees had three passions. They were passionate about the land. They were passionate about the temple. They were passionate about the law, the law of Moses. So think of it in, the, in, in these terms. They were passionate about the territory, the temple, 
and the Torah. The Pharisees valued circumcision and the covenant and the food and drink laws because these were identity markers. This is who we are, the Pharisees said. We are dedicated, we're distinct, we're, we're, we're committed and consecrated to the Lord God. We're like Daniel of old in Babylon. We're not going to compromise. Daniel didn't compromise. We're not going to compromise. We're going to be distinct, separate. Perushim, Pharisee the separate ones. And I think there's something to admire about that. And by Jesus' day, the Pharisees had quite a bit of influence in Israel. Most of them weren't wealthy. Most were middle-class, working-class Hebrews, and, and, and they were moral and good and decent and law-abiding. And Jesus had a mixed relationship with the Pharisees. In John chapter 2, it was a more positive relationship because John chapter 2 is about Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee, and his was a better encounter than, than with many of the Pharisees in Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel, Luke shows us that the Pharisees, at least some of them, were, were known for self-promotion. And they took pride in their fastidious attention to law-keeping. And the Pharisee in this parable, he was honest. He didn't cheat others. He didn't cheat on his wife. He was a tither. He gave 10%. And not just his paycheck, but his birthday gifts. And he fasted twice weekly. Likely that would have been on Mondays and Thursdays. Because Thursday was the day that Moses went up to receive the law. He was gone 40 days and returned on a Monday. So this Pharisee was reputable. He'd invested in his community. And they, had there been a Jerusalem rotary, this guy would be a member there in good standing. Jesus says in verse 11 that the Pharisee was, he stood by himself, is what it says. Literally, literally, standing, he prayed about himself. Mm. God, I thank you. Now, nothing wrong with that. Good way to start prayers with gratitude. Gratitude's one of the healthiest, healthiest emotions you can feel, really. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Oops. I thank you that I'm not like the extortionist and the ungodly and the womanizers. We're even that tax collector over there. Did he really say that? God, I thank you that Windsor Road Christian Church has been privileged to have me as their pastor all these years. I thank you that I'm not like all those other rotten pastors who split their churches and run off with the offerings and cheat on their marriages. I thank you for my devoted service to this church. I thank you that every Sunday they sit spellbound beneath my riveting pulpit rhetoric. God, I want to thank you for me. Five times in the Pharisee's prayer, he says, I. You see it there in the text? Five eyes. Five eyes, all boasting about who he wasn't like and what he didn't do and what he'd done. He, he compared himself with the tax collector in an attempt to make himself look better on the outside than he really was on the inside. 
Ironically, while the Pharisee despised the tax collector, he actually needed him to be what he was so that he could compare himself. And then Jesus gave this verdict. When this Pharisee walked away from the temple compound, when he went back down to his family and when he went back to work and his associations and the civic meetings that he was involved with, it was as if he'd never visited the temple at all. Think about it. This Pharisee was as close to the temple as a Hebrew man could get, but in the end, he was light years from God. He was a very religious guy who went to church and who was also headed for hell. And here's my question. Did he even know it? Was he even aware of his peril? Or is he going to show up the very next day and do the very next thing? Wow. What's that about? Well, the late Tim Keller said it's about the problem of righteousness. The problem of righteousness. Now, we hear the word righteousness in church, and we think good morals and doing religious practices, but it's actually a broader term than that. The word has to do with a lot more than just being good. It's about being qualified. It's about being accepted. In the Bible, you are righteous, you are qualified, you are accepted when you meet the demands of the law. Think about a teacher or a doctor being board certified Think about a, a, a financial planner having to, having to pass a series of licensing tests. There's a certain standard that has to be kept. And if you keep those standards, if you keep those benchmarks, then you're accepted, you're approved, you're qualified, you're righteous. You're righteous, you see. And by the way, every person on the face of this earth, every culture, every nation, has this deep-seated need to be qualified because we want to know that our lives have worth and our lives have meaning. We want to know that we've been approved. And, and so we go about trying to prove ourselves in various ways. And in, in some cultures, it's, it's about achieving glory in battle. In other cultures, it's, it's about a bow and arrow after a touchdown. In other cultures, it's about going to seek fortune. In still other cultures, it means getting one's education. In, in our culture, it's about achieving the American dream. There was a movie called uh, The Natural, starring Robert Redford years ago. And Redford plays a, a pro baseball player named Roy Hobbs. And he's driven to be successful, so much so that his sweetheart asks him, why? why? Why are you so driven? And this is what he says. This is what he says. So that when I go down the street, people will look at me and say, there goes Roy Hobbs, the greatest baseball player who ever lived, the best there ever was. Well, that's our hunger. That's our, that's our, that's our hunger. That's, our, that's our, our craving for approval and acceptance. And, and listen, listen, listen. The purest version of this craving can be found 
in Genesis chapter 2 when Adam and Eve stood naked before a holy God and they were unashamed, they were accepted, they were qualified, they enjoyed fellowship with the Lord, they enjoyed His acceptance until Genesis chapter 3 when they acted on the serpent's words over the word of God. The snake's first words out of his own mouth was a question, did God really say? Did God really say? Well, well, he, he said we couldn't eat it or touch it. Now, God never said they couldn't touch it. Yet that small addition, that little small addition, shows us that our spiritual ancestors weren't just law-breaking, they were law making see they were law making in other words in other words our spiritual ancestors started making up their own standards that's what this pharisee was doing i fast twice a week god never told israel that they had to fast twice a week just once a year can you see what happens when we law make We end up establishing our own standards, which when fulfilled, cause us to look down on others. And that's verse 9. People who trust in their own righteousness will inevitably despise others. Do you want to be that kind of person? I mean, this is a fork-in-the-road parable here. And the fork in the road, think about it. The fork in the road is not out in some saloon. The fork in the road is not in Las Vegas. The fork in the road is at church. At church. Who do you want to be? What do you want to become? And the Pharisee's biggest problem is that he thinks that what he's doing works. He thinks that by appearing and performing his religious deeds, that makes him a special person before a holy God. And not only that, not only that, he had the gall to blaspheme God by giving God gratitude for being the author of his narcissistic idolatry. But here's the irony where is he? The temple. What's the temple? The temple is a meeting place between God and his people. But a meeting place requires mediation. It requires a mediator. It requires a go-between. And that requires a sacrifice. So on the one hand, this Pharisee is so close to the sacrifice that's being offered, yet at the same time, he fails to understand that that sacrifice is for him. The lamb is for him, but the Pharisee doesn't think it's for him. He thinks it's for somebody else, like that tax collector. Oh, tax collectors. In Jesus' day, people looked on tax collectors as traitors. See, see here's what happened 2,000 years ago. Rome would contract out taxation districts or taxation farms, sections of the empire to tax farmers 
tax farmers. And, uh, and they were typically of that ethnicity, of that territory. So Rome would hire out or contract out a, a taxation district to a Hebrew. Well, they were considered enemies of the Hebrew people. They'd sold out to the pagan occupying powers. And Rome said this to the tax collectors. Look, here's what we need. Whatever you can get on top of that for yourself, it's totally okay with us. It was legalized extortion. The tax collectors were the anti-Pharisees. So in this parable, the Pharisee's posture is described briefly, but his prayer is long-winded. Here, the tax collector's posture is described in detail, but his prayer is brief. Do you see that? Standing alone, standing alone by himself. He can't even look to heaven. He, he's beating his chest in grief over his life and over his choices and over his decisions and, and, and what his, his resistance against God has cost him. All he can literally say is this, Oh God, let this atonement be for me, the sinner. Not a sinner, the sinner. It's like he's the only one there. And then Jesus shocks the audience by pronouncing to them that the wrong type went home forgiven. See, see, everybody was expecting Jesus to say, well, that the Pharisee went home forgiven because that's what happens in our world. But in God's world, by the end of the parable, Pharisee, is the word is not even mentioned. It's just the phrase, rather than the other. He's relegated to rather than the other. Why? Because the Pharisee saw his self-righteousness and thought he was safe. But the tax collector saw his sin and knew he was lost. The Pharisee assumed his own goodness would get him to heaven. The tax collector knew that only God could keep him out of hell. The Pharisee trusted his moralism. The tax collector trusted in God's mercy. As my old preaching professor used to put it, this is a story about a good man who went to hell and a bad man who went to heaven. It, it's a cautionary parable about pride versus humility. What kind of a person do you want to be? What kind of a church do we want to become? Pride boasts accomplishments. Humility begs for compassion. Pride speaks condescendingly. Humility kneels unpretentiously. Pride corrupts the heart. Humility invites the power of God. Pride makes God yawn. Humility fascinates his attention. The proud will fall. The humble will be lifted. Brothers and sisters, unrepented pride guarantees disaster. Unwavering humility guarantees acclaim. God's acclaim. The only acclaim that matters. For everyone, verse 14, who exalts himself will be humbled, 
but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen? How do we humble ourselves? So, the take-home is not, now, do more, try harder. The take-home is not, you know, work harder at being humble. That's not the take-home. Okay? That's not. Here's the take-home. Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open for you. That's the take-home. The take-home is ask. (laughs) Do you notice that in the Pharisee's prayer, he never asks God for anything? Do you see that? He doesn't ask for anything. Why? Because he doesn't think he needs anything. He doesn't see his need for help. He doesn't see his deficit. He has pride. Pride causes blind spots. Pride blinds you from your vulnerabilities. From, your, from seeing your need, from seeing the need to change. And the Pharisee doesn't see that he needs to change. This, is a, hey, this, is a, this parable is like the movie The Sixth Sense. Remember the movie The Sixth Sense? I see dead people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see dead people, only they don't know they're dead. See, this parable is about two men. Both are dead, but only one knows that he's dead. And only one, therefore, asks to be raised from the dead. And as long as the Pharisee doesn't think he's dead, why would he think about asking God to raise him? Church, Christianity is not about moral improvement. It's not about reforming the reformable. It's not about improving the improvable. It's about resurrection. It's about calling dead people to new life. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, So Jesus condemns the Pharisee because the Pharisee takes his stand on a life God cannot use. Jesus commends the tax collector because the tax collector rests his case on a death that God can use. God can't use your life, but he can use your death. So get by yourself this week. Unplug from your technology and open the Bible to this parable. True change comes when we are alone with God because when you're alone with God, you don't have anybody else to compare yourself with. It's you and a holy God. And when you're honest with your heart and when you are naked before a holy God, it is going to be very clear that His white, hot holiness, we, 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 can't, we can't approach it with our sin. We just can't. We need help. We need help. We're in peril before a holy God because of our sin. You're about as safe before a holy God as being in ankle-deep water trying to work on your electrical panel. It is not safe to be alone before a holy God without a mediator. And the gospel 
is about an untamed, unsafe, yet loving, merciful God who saw our sin fall short of his standard and who himself provided a mediator. For there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And the gospel is that the one who told this parable, Jesus Christ, he set his face toward Jerusalem and he's going to lay his life down on the altar of the cross, the Lamb of God. Yes, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the perfect, unblemished, pure sacrifice provided mercy and not just for one day, forever. Oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. May the mercy of your sacrifice pay for my sin. Have mercy on my unrighteousness and have mercy on my righteousness because I don't trust my motives when I'm righteous. Help me, Lord. You, you hear the big idea? Here it is. Here it is. God qualifies those who cry mercy, not those who crow their merits. This, this parable says what God values, what is of great worth in the eyes of God. What kind of person does God want me to be? What kind of church does he want us to become? Who are we to be and what are we to become? What is this? This, this is an identity parable. And this parable informs us that each of us is becoming one of two persons. Can you see it for what it is? Can we see the person we're becoming? And can we see the church that we're becoming? Yeah. What, what, what heart best displays the life of Christ? The heart of a Pharisee or the heart of a tax collector? And here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. When Christ's mercy floods your heart, when you live in the smile of his approval, you become so satisfied you don't even need anybody else's approval. Yeah, and, and so, and so you, can, you can still help the under-resourced like, like we spent yesterday doing as a church family, but we, but we do it in a different way. We still tithe and share to, to, as, as, a, as a conduit of God's mercy to His church and this world, but it's for a different reason. And we might still fast, Yes, you read your Bible and you pray, but not because it makes you feel superior. It's just because, God, I love you, 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 God. This parable reminds me that even the most religious person can miss the goal of life. Even a pastor can miss it. If God is my father, then that means the tax collector, whoever he is, Whatever his ethnic or national background, whatever gifts or abilities he or she may have, that tax collector is my sibling in the family of God. And, and, and whatever our distinctives might be throughout the world and in, in view of how God has created us, oh my goodness, together we bow before a heavenly Father fully committed to his inerrant word. E even to the point where we become unthinkable. It's unthinkable for us to say, God, I thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee. Well, that's not the point of the parable. See, there's always a Pharisee lurking inside us, isn't there? Oh, God, kill that Pharisee in me. Crucify him. God qualifies those who cry for mercy, not those who crow their merits. That's what I came to say today. Amen.